Psalms chapter 5, if you haven't been with us in the last two weeks, we're, we're diving into 150 chapters of this book. It divides into five different books. We, we saw it, the division is chapters 1 through 41 is, is book 1. Uh, chapters 42 through 72 is book 2, and then 73 through 89, and that's kind of the breakdown, and we'll go through that as we get there eventually. Um, Psalms is written by a variety of people. We have, uh, as we know, King David was a huge contributor to the Psalms. 73 of them were written by him, and actually that's tonight we're going to focus on a few more of his, and then the sons of Korah, and King Solomon wrote a couple, Moses even wrote one, and so... There's 48 that are anonymous. But there are different themes as we go about the Psalms. Psalms takes on a different um, feelings, if you will. Uh, we have those Psalms of thanksgiving. We have songs of wisdom, of praise. We have a lament um, that express, you know, the pain and the confusion and in the anger. And tonight we've got chapter five, let's just dive right in and we'll pick up. It says, it says, for the choir director, for flute accompaniment, a psalm of David, give ear to my words, O Lord, and consider my groaning. Heed the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. In the morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. In the morning, I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. And the Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. But as for me, by your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house. And at your holy temple, I will bow in reverence for you. O Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. There is nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They're, they flatter with their tongue. Hold them guilty, O God, by their own devices. Let them fall. In the multitude of their transgressions, thrust them out, for they are rebellious against you. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy, and may you shelter them, that those who love your name may exalt in you. For it is you who blesses the righteous man, O Lord. You surround him with favor as with a shield. And that's chapter 5. Psalm 5 gives us a heading. It says that it's written by David to the choir director. Again, it means that this is created for corporate worship. That's it. That's all it gives us within the context. We don't really have a nice background like we did last week with, with the background of uh, Absalom. When it, that, that was the exact context of what David was writing. But when reading through this, and as I'm reading some commentators, and um, it has a very similar feeling um, to what we covered last week in, in three and four, where we saw Absalom, David's son, and he's taking over the kingdom by force. He's led this rebellion against his father. He pretty much, in essence, kicks David off the throne, out of the city. David finds himself on the run, and he's disheartened. His head is hanging low. He's in tears. He's in the wilderness. He falls asleep. He awakes. That's why David wrote um, in, in a couple of chapters in, in three, I should say, that morning psalm. It says, he says, I, I lay down, and I slept, and I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. 
Again, this is a very difficult season in David's life. Life as he once knew it was gone in a moment's time, but the Lord showed his faithfulness to David. That's what I loved last week looking at. And then in, and then in chapter four, we have an evening prayer, an evening psalm in a very similar, if not the same context as chapter three, where David says in verse eight, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. So tonight, regardless of the exact context of this particular psalm, again, some scholars say that it's in the same context. It, it, has, it carries a lot of the same type of writing where you have Absalom chasing David. It's in that time of David's life. Again, the psalms are not in chronological order. But it could be very well where Absalom's thousands of soldiers are pursuing David, trying to kill him and as he's fleeing the wilderness. But again, regardless of the context, there is a battle happening right in front of him. It's an intense time for David. And he writes, look at verse one again of chapter five. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Heed the sound of my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. So here, I love this. David has, if it is the context, I should say, of, of chapter three of the Absalom, I mean, David's kind of been overtaken by his son. David here, he's recognizing who the real king is. I love that there in, in verse two, my king and my God, right? Um, it was um, years ago, David would have seen himself as the sole king of Israel, but that got him into a lot of trouble because the Bible tells us that it was in the time of the year when the kings would go off into battle. David, if you guys remember the story of Bathsheba, David stayed behind and it's there that he saw Bathsheba. He got her pregnant. Not only that, he tries to cover up the sin, ultimately uh, couldn't cover it up. And so he has uh, Bathsheba's husband killed on the front lines of battle. And so David used to think, man, I am the king, right? I am the most powerful. I can have what I want when I want it. I'm above all. You can't say anything else that would change my mind. And then he's confronted by his sin. Wow, Nathan the prophet comes to him. And David there is met with the mercy and grace of God. He becomes a very broken man at that point. And I believe he fully understood the biblical truth of sowing and reaping. Very much so. I think he fully understands that the throne here doesn't belong to anyone. It doesn't belong to Absalom. It doesn't even belong to himself. I think he fully knows that God is the one who establishes and remove, removes kings, not Absalom, right? And so David, he's this broken man. He's at this place in his life where he knows who the real king is. And I said, give ear to my word, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Heed the sound of my cry for help. The psalmist begins with three imperatives as he's directing God's attention to his words. He says, give ear to my words. David knew that his only hope in life for survival, for encouragement, right? It was all on God. And he says, give ear to my word. He goes to the Lord and I love that. He's saying, God, would you give me your ear? I kind, of, I kind of liken it to like your child just tugging on your shirt, the shirt of a parent. Like, come on, I want to tell you something. And David's here like, Lord, would you give me your ear? Would you give me your attention? Then he says, consider my groaning. Maybe your translation says, or meditation, consider my meditation. So side note, I grew up um, singing a lot of songs from scripture. 
I don't know if you guys know this song. If I was Pastor Doug, I'd probably sing it for you, but give ear to my word, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Hearken unto the, the voice of my cry, my king. Do you guys know that song? I don't know if it's Maranatha or whatever. Some of you are like, no, never heard of it. Never, don't want to. But anyways, it's scripture. So I know actually a lot of my verse memorizations in the Psalms from songs that we used to sing growing up as a child. So I love it. The power of music. Even tonight, like singing, we were just singing about the three guys in the fire. We were just singing about Moses, like at the water and God making miracles. Man, it's the power of songs, right? And so this was in their songbook to be sung. So that was a side note. Anyways, meditation. Yes, your translation could say that. So not only is he asking God to give an ear to listen to his words, but I love this. He, he says, God, even when I'm not able to speak clear or to have all the right words to say to you, Lord, in those times when I can't articulate well, when my soul is agonizing in pain, when I'm groaning, he says, Lord, would you consider that a prayer to you? Would you read through the mess that is in my heart? Or that, or that word consider means perceive. Lord, would you perceive what I'm not able to clearly speak? Would you just see the burden on my heart? I, I just can't get it off my chest. I have it trapped on my heart. Would you consider it? Would you perceive it? And aren't you glad that the Lord can hear beyond our words? Sometimes I, I feel like I have to pretty up my words and, and not in the sense of eloquence, but in the sense of like, I have to always quick, have a quick resolve, like, uh, God, I'm having a bad day, but I know you're good. And it's like, man, the Lord knows really the truth of how we're feeling. Aren't you guys glad about that? Sometimes we, we approach prayer. I don't know what to pray. I don't know how to pray. I just know, oh man, I just know the pain. It hurts or I'm frustrated or ah. It's like, God, God knows and I love that. And the root word here for groaning or meditation is only used one other time in the whole Bible. In Psalm 39, it means this longing, yearning, this aching, the deepest aching of the being. The most inward thing that we can do. So David is saying, as, as his heart is broken before the Lord, seeing his sin, maybe seeing his son in rebellion, he, his life just falling apart. He's groaning, he's yearning. He's, 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 the aching of his heart is just pouring out. He says, Lord, would you hear this? Would you hear this? Would you perceive this? Think of Isaiah 58, 9. It says, then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry and he will say, here I am. Psalm 118.5, in my distress, I prayed to the Lord and the Lord answered me and set me free. Psalm 120, in my trouble, I cried to the Lord and he answered me. Man, the Lord is listening. Or one of the most famous, Psalm 34, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Now, the third time he says in verse two, he says, heed the sound of my cry for help. That word heed is like when you hear something in your, and your ears just pop up, you know, or you hear a noise like in your house and your dog just goes, oh, like, what's that? Like, I'm going after it. Like, that's the word. And he, he's like, Lord, would you heed? Would you, when I cry, would you heed the sound of my voice? Would you stand up? Would you pay attention? Would you be perked up and alert? Heed the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you, he says, I pray. David isn't giving himself a pep talk. Sometimes we try to do pep talks. Like, okay, I got this. I, I'm gonna overcome this. I'm gonna pull myself up from my bootstraps and here we go. No, no, no. He's saying, Lord, it's you that I'm praying to. This is my prayer to you. Give ear to my words. Consider my groaning. Heed the voice of my cry. You're my King and my God. You're in control of it all, Lord. But I'm praying to you the living God. This isn't fancy pep talk speech. No, no, no. This isn't self-help. No, no, no. Lord, I'm coming before you. 
Then he says in verse three, in the morning, oh Lord, you will hear my voice. In the morning, I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. He says twice in one verse, you notice that in the morning, David made it a point to meet with the Lord, to start his day off with the Lord. And we can see his earnestness here as he reiterates. He says, in the morning, God, in the morning, I'm coming to you. In the morning, Lord, I'm gonna order my prayers before you. And he says, you will hear my voice each morning. I love that. And then he says, and I love, and eagerly watch. So not only am I, not only am I just ordering them, laying them before you, but I'm eagerly watching. The New Living uh, says this in verse three, listen to my voice in the morning, Lord. Each morning I will bring my request to you and wait expectantly. You guys see that? Wait expectantly. Do you guys remember a couple of weeks ago on a Sunday, I, I was teaching out of Philippians three where Paul says that we're eagerly waiting for the savior. And then we, we looked at how like, there's a difference between eagerly waiting and just waiting, right? Well, the same thing applies here. There's, there's a expect, waiting expectantly and just waiting. And I think there's a huge difference there. David is saying, I order my prayers. I lay them before you. I'm earnestly praying to you, not just haphazardly praying or half-heartedly praying, but I'm also waiting on you expectantly. I'm eagerly watching and waiting for your response. Now, let me ask you in prayer, when you're approaching the Lord in prayer, how often are you waiting expectantly? That's the key word, expectantly. I'm not asking if you, do you think that God hears you? Do you think he'll eventually answer you in a couple of years from now? But are you on the edge of your seat like God could reply in a moment's time? He wants to reveal himself to you. Like God, here's my cry. And now we're turning. We're actively engaging in a posture of listening right away because we're expecting his response. Charles Spurgeon said this, let holy preparation link hands with patient expectation and we shall have far larger answers to our prayers. Now, if I could be honest with you as I've going, going through this, I believe I personally, I'm not sure if you're here with me, miss out on hearing from the Lord so often because I'm not in this posture of waiting expectantly. I throw out prayers because it's the thing you do, right? When you have a burden, you throw out the prayers. But to have this attitude that says, Lord, here it is, but I'm gonna sit before you and I'm gonna wait. Sometimes I hurry that process. I've been singing in my head or probably my alone time out loud, all right? There's a song that I grew up singing from a worship leader in Seattle, Brett Williams. He wrote this song years ago, but he talks about in this song, hurrying past the throne room, missing so much. That's the idea. When I hurry past your throne room. And even though I learned that song when I was young, it's been on my heart lately in the last couple of weeks. And I've been reflecting on these words, Lord, help me to not hurry in your presence. Help me to not rush through this worship service on a Sunday. Help me to not just rush through my prayer list Monday through Friday and miss out what you have, miss out on what you're trying to speak. Prayer is never a one-way form of communication. But my prayer is, Lord, help me just to wait, to sit before you and not just wait, but wait expectantly for you to move, for you to answer, 
for you to speak. And that's my prayer for our church. You know, this Saturday, in a couple of days, we have a night of prayer. And I pray that you guys would come, but you wouldn't just come, but you would come with a heart of waiting expectantly that God is gonna show up, that he's gonna speak. He's gonna answer our prayers. We're not just praying half-hearted. Look at verse four. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness and no evil dwells with you. David, is, he's meditating on the character of God. He knows this very well. God cannot tolerate sin. God's not gonna put up with it. He's speaking probably from experience here. He knows this side of God. Verse five, the boastful, he says now, shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. Saying it, it may seem like the enemy is making millions of dollars in the world. Everyone else, all the good guys are losing. It may seem like the wicked are getting elected and taking high, you know, high offices. It may seem like injustice is just flowing day after day and that good people are constantly getting the short end of the stick. But he says, listen, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. He says, you hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood or lies. They have no future, he says. They can't stand before you. They have no future. They're gonna be destroyed. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. No, no doubt David could have been, he could be thinking about his son Absalom when he's writing these words. Absalom has been out shedding blood, filled with deceit and lies, right? That's how he overtook the kingdom from his father, verse seven. But as for me... David says, by your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house. At your holy temple, I will bow in reverence for you. David's saying, regardless of what the wicked are doing, regardless of how the wicked are living their lives, spending their money, regardless of all of that, he says, because of your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house. That word loving kindness means mercy. Because of your mercy, God, I can approach you. I'm not standing far off. I'm not distant. I'm entering into your house. Like a child entering in to come see his father. That's how David here is coming before the Lord with boldness, with confidence. Again, not based on his own merits, like he deserves to, to be face to face with God. No, no, no. David's confidence is that his righteousness is not an act of himself but rather his confidence is in the mercy of God who has forgiven him. And because of that, he stands before the Lord. He says, at your holy temple, I will bow in reverence for you. Notice David's humility here. When a person knows how much they've blown it in their lives, they've sinned great and they know it. They're reaping what they've sown and they know in the same breath, I know, Lord, how much I've been forgiven. It changes them. It changes them. It changes how they view things. It's ha it changes how they interact with people, how they approach God. And here we see the humility before the Lord that David has. And he says in verse eight, oh Lord, lead me in your righteousness because of my foes. Make your way straight before me. He's saying, man, I need all the help I can get. Lead me, make your, your way straight. There's nothing reliable in what they say. David here, he's making his case against the wicked. He's saying, don't just take it from me, Lord. Like, let's weigh their words out, if you will. Let's, let's take their, their words as evidence and let's, let's kind of view it. Let's weigh it. Let's see if this is actually true. You know, I think of Jesus and his words in Matthew 12, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? David's saying, these guys are wicked. Notice what they're saying. <laughs> their inward part, he says, is destruction itself. That means they're completely wicked. 
Their throat is an open grave. They're, they flatter with their tongue. Again, like we talked about Absalom last week. He was a smooth-talking, young, charismatic leader. He was good with his words. He was good convincing the nation that he was, he was to be trusted. He was to be king. He, he was convincing in his speech. David says in verse 10, hold them guilty, O God. By their own devices, let them fall. In the multitude of their transgressions, thrust them out, for they are rebellious against you. Now, I don't believe David is asking with like this vengeful spirit. David knew he was saved by the grace, by the mercy of the Lord. He's not wishing that people would just find themselves dead and crushed and killed because of their sins. But he's saying, Lord, there's an order here. He's saying, they're not rebelling against me, but against something you've done. This is something you've established, Lord. Verse 11, but let all who take refuge in you be glad and let them ever sing for joy. And may you shelter them that those who love your name may exult in you. So in the midst again of all that is going on in David's life, He's lost his kingdom. One son dead, one daughter violated, one son currently hunting him down, ripping apart the kingdom. He says, but let all, of, uh, let all who take refuge in you be glad. Not just in my life, but in future generations, God. Like not, no matter what they're facing, maybe people, Lord, in 2021, maybe that's what he's thinking. I don't know. There's going to be a lot of people facing like hard times. They can't make sense of the world around them. They're, in, they're facing unprecedented territories, right? Uncharted waters in their lives. Lord, let them take refuge in you be, and be glad. Why? He says, and may you shelter them. Verse 12, for it is you who blesses the righteous man. Oh Lord, you surround him with favor as with a shell. He's saying, why can I be God? Why can we take refuge in the Lord? Why can we have this experience? Why can we trust you? He says, because it's you, God. It's you who blesses the righteous. You surround them with favor as with a shield. Again, when everything is falling apart in life, you can't make sense of your life right now. He says, take refuge in the Lord. He will surround you with favor as like a shield. And that's the greatest blessing of it all, the favor of God, amen? We are far beyond gaining the favor of this world, just so you know. We want to walk with Jesus. We want to be disciples. We're probably not going to be the world's favorite. But the thing that we're after is God's favor. And David says, that's okay, because that's what we're going to have. We have God's favor. This favor is likened to a shield, he says. David Gutzik said, a shield does not protect any one area of the body. It is large and mobile enough to cover any and every area of the body. It is armor over armor. This is how fully the favor of God protects us. Armor over armor. Amen to that? The favor of God. Matthew chapter five, let's keep going. Chapter six, again, written, as you see right before verse one, it says written to the choir director. This is another psalm that was to be sung publicly in corporate worship. Psalm six is known as the first of seven penitential psalms. That is a psalm of confession or humility. This is a psalm of repentance. The other six are found in Psalm 32, Psalm 38, Psalm 51, Psalm 102, 130, and 143. Those are the psalms of repentance. There's seven of them. And here we have in chapter six, one of those. Yeah, let's go ahead and read the whole thing. Oh Lord, verse one, 
Do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am pining away. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are dismayed and my soul is greatly dismayed. But you, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, rescue my soul. Save me because of your loving kindness. For there is no mention of you in death and Sheol, who will give you thanks? I am weary with my sighing. Every night I make my bed swim. I dissolve my couch with my tears. My eye has wasted away with grief. It has become old because of all my adversaries. Depart from me, all you who do iniquity. For the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord receives my prayer. I love that. All my enemies will be ashamed and greatly dismayed. They shall turn back. They will suddenly be ashamed. The, cre- the question, sorry, the question as we go along is always, what is the background to this psalm? Is it a part of the heartbreak that David was going through with Absalom because of his sin? No, you don't know. But regardless, again, of each exact context, you can see, again, by just reading through this, that David just feels in his life that he is in a place where God is dealing with him because of his sin. Look at verse one. Oh Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, says, oh Lord, for I am pining away. Heal me, for my bones are dismayed and my soul is greatly dismayed. David was a man well aware that he deserved to be rebuked. He deserved to be corrected by the Lord. But he says, Lord, when you do... Please don't do it in your wrath. Please don't do it when you're angry. He says, be gracious to me. Or maybe your translation again says, have mercy on me. Listen, when we've wronged, when we've sinned before the Lord, this is the right way to plead with God. Charles Spurgeon said, urge not your goodness or your greatness, but plead your sin and your littleness. Cry, I am weak. Therefore, O Lord, give me strength and crush me not. David here, he's pleading, not his goodness, not his Lord. I I promise not to do it again. Lord, I promise to do better next time. No, no, no. He's saying, Lord, I, I know I don't deserve this, but would you be merciful to me? Would you be gracious to me? Remember your character, Lord. You're slow to anger. You're abounding in loving kindness. Something huge is going obviously on in David's life. It could be a physical infirmity. We don't know. It just could be a soul agonizing, right? This troubling thing due to his sin, whatever it is, he's viewing it as a rebuke from the Lord and it's causing him grief. But I love that he knows enough about the Lord to still go to him. He doesn't run from the Lord. You know, on Sunday, we we heard part one of the story of the prodigal. And the thing that stood out to me, we were talking about it in our small group last night is that when the prodigal, and we know the story, so I'm not gonna recap the whole thing, so fill in the blanks <laughs> with your memory from Sunday. But the prodigal, he's a long way off from home and he's you know, spent all of his money and he's dirty, he's eating with pigs, he's hanging out with pigs, right? They're very unclean. And he might as well just die, <laughs> in essence. He's just in this horrible place. And he, I think Pastor Doug brought it up, like he must be thinking, man, it'd be really great to return home. like but how can I return home after I've done all of this? Like, and he's coming to that, his senses, I think it says, and he's remembering like, man, my father is so gracious to all of his servants. Like I could, I'd live better as a slave to my dad. 
I brought this on myself though. How could I possibly return? But then, and then Pastor Doug said something super, I thought to me it was profound and it greatly ministered to me. He said, the younger son knew enough about his father. He knew enough about his father. He knew that his father was a merciful man. Because in our flesh, if we don't know much about the Lord, we, we could blow it, we could sin, we can, we can just go off the deep end. And we're just, if we don't know the Lord, we're, we're thinking he's mad at me. He's, he's, he doesn't want to see me. He, he just, he wants to kick me. I, I mean, I might as well just die. Like, you know, like, but, but the prodigal knew enough about his father that he could, he could return. He's like, man, my dad is a, is, a, is a merciful father. And the same thing about David. David knows enough about the Lord. He knows that he can approach God, whether he feels like, feels like he deserves it or not, whether he's merited it or not, but he knows enough about the Lord that, Lord, you are a merciful and gracious father. You're slow to anger and you're bounding loving kindness. Look, I can approach you on the basis of who you are, not what I've done. Verse four, return, O Lord, rescue my soul. He says, return. Have you ever felt like God was far from you, distant from you, like in your life? Maybe you're distant from God. Remember, I think it was the last question on Sunday. If you feel far from God, guess who moved? But it's a very frightening feeling, man. I can't feel his presence. And this is troubling to David here. David knew, man, when God is with me, I can do anything. Right? When God is with me, I'm on top of the world. Like, this is great. But God's presence, when it feels afar off, man, dude, I'm, 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 I'm shuddering at the smallest, like, headache. <laughs> like, no, like, my life is over. I panic. So he says, return, oh Lord, rescue my soul. Save me because of your loving kindness. Again, David knows that he doesn't deserve God to draw near. He doesn't deserve God to rescue him. Doesn't deserve God to save him. But he says, Lord, do it because of your loving kindness. Or maybe your translation says, because of your mercy's sake. Do it for you. Do it to display your greatness. Verse five, for there is no mention of you in death and Sheol, who will give you thanks? I am weary with my sighing. Every night I make my bed swim. I dissolve my couch or my bed with tears. Can we just pause right there for just a second? Let me ask us collectively tonight. When was the last time that we cried over our sin? I didn't like that question when I wrote it on my paper today. Just if I'm honest. But when was the last time you cried over your sin, when you were grieved over your sin? Grieved so much that it brought you to tears. Like, I don't cry. No, when was the last time that you were faced with a holy God and your, your, and your sinfulness and you're just like, man, I am wretched. When was the last time? Again, normally, if I'm honest, even in times of brokenness and seasons of brokenness, it can be easy for me to put like on my game face when I come to church, like I'm doing great. Like the day's going good. I'm, I'm smiling, bro. Like, how are you doing? Like, you know, like even in those times, but David says every night, he's like, I'm honest. I, I make my bed swim because of the amount of tears. Now, this is what we would call poetic exaggeration. <laughs> David's bed isn't literally floating, but he's drawing this picture of brokenness in repentance before a holy God. This is what it looks like. He says, every night when I'm faced with this, I make my bed swim. I dissolve my couch with my tears. Verse seven, my, eyes has, my eye has wasted away with grief. 
It has become old because of my adversaries. He's saying, Lord, this doesn't ever seem to go away. It's getting old, he says. And then all of a sudden in verse eight and verse nine, he's kind of got this light bulb moment, if you will, for David. He's pouring out his heart. It's like, click. Depart from me, all you who do iniquity, verse eight. For the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. All all of a sudden he realizes, oh wait, Lord, you're here. Like you're there, you're there after all. You are still listening to me. You do hear me when I'm crying out to you. He says, verse nine, the Lord has heard. He says again, my supplication. And knowing that the Lord has heard him, he, he says with confidence, the Lord receives my prayers. Verse 10, all my enemies will be ashamed and greatly dismayed. They shall turn back. They will suddenly be ashamed. He says, the Lord receives it, man. The Lord welcomes. In other words, he'll accept it. He will respond to it. And he's going to deal with my enemies. He's going to deal with whatever you're facing in your life. Don't you love that? The nearness of God isn't contingent on whether you're having a good day with Jesus or not that he is faithful regardless of your faithfulness to him, that he will never leave you. Oh, there's a condition. No, no, he'll never leave you. He's there. Would we be aware of that? Now, chapter seven, again, is a Psalm of David. It says, which he sang to the Lord. It doesn't say he wrote this for the choir director. He calls it a shigion, shigion, which, what does that even mean? Any takers? <laughs> One person said it can mean meditation. Char- Char- like Spurgeon says like, well, no, I think this is like a loud cry. I'm like, well, those are kind of two like conflicting things. So anyways, there you go. You can look it up later. Let me know next week. But this is a song of David. He sang it to the Lord concerning Cush, a Benjamite. And this is, the, this is a song for people who have who've slandered you. Like, this is for you. If you've been slandered by someone, you've been stabbed in the back by someone, Charles Spurgeon calls this the song of the slandered saints. That's Psalm 7. And it seems to be in, in the context of early in David's life when he's being hunted by Saul. There seems to be someone in Saul's circle, very close to King Saul, named Cush, possibly the Benjamite from Saul's tribe. He's accusing David falsely. Someone's making just these horrible accusations about David, stabbing David in the back, slandering him. So if you find yourself in a, in a circumstance, a situation in your life, that you're like, man, I can kind of relate to that right now. This is your Psalm right here, chapter seven. This is how, the, this is, I think the Lord gives this to us for moments like that. He says, oh Lord, my God, in you I have taken refuge. Save me from all those who pursue me and deliver me, or he will tear my soul like a lion, dragging me away while there is none to deliver. Again, this is David. He's on the run, fleeing for his life. People are chasing after him once again. They're making accusations. They're not true. David, remember, he was a man that was loyal to Saul. He had every opportunity, not just one opportunity. He had two opportunities to kill Saul while he's on the run. But he's like, no, no, no. Who am I to to, to touch the Lord's anointed? I'm leaving Saul into God's hand. God can deal with Saul. But he's on the run. Nowhere else to go. No one else to run to, to find refuge in. And so he turns to the Lord. 
Every other supporter, nowhere to be found here. But he cries out to the Lord and he says again, it's in you I have taken refuge. Save me from all those who pursue me and deliver me. Or he will tear my soul like a lion, dragging me away while there's none to deliver. Isn't it interesting how he says he will tear my soul like a lion? Not my physical body. And I think for, for us tonight, for those that have been stabbed in the back, falsely accused by someone, maybe even close to you, but just betrayed, it goes beyond the physical, doesn't it? Obviously. Sometimes there's distance. Sometimes there's immediate physical threats. But there's an inward pain that happens. And David, he's expressing just how serious it is for him. A little dramatic in my estimation, if you will, but he's expressing how intense it is for him. He, he continues to plead. He says, oh, Lord, my God. Notice the ifs here. He says, if I have done this, if there is injustice in my hands, if I have rewarded evil to my friend or have plundered him uh, who without cause was my adversary. He's saying, Lord, if I've done any of those things that they're accusing me of, any of them, he says, let the, let the enemy pursue me my soul and, over, and let it overtake it and let him trample my life down to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Lord, if, that's, if it is true, he's saying, search me, then that's fine. Like let's, let's be on correct kind of playing field here. Let's be on a mutual understanding. Let the enemy just take over me, devour my soul like a lion. If it's true, let it happen. And then he says this, Selah, <laughs> pause there, time out, remember? Slow down, quiet the noise, meditate on that. He's saying, this stinks. <laughs> That's Ryan's interpretation. I've got people stabbing me in the back, friends that are now foes, my closest friends, family members. They're saying horrible things about me. I've lost relationships over this. It's unfair. I'm on the run for my life, but I'm putting my trust in the Lord. I'm finding refuge in God. And then he says, Lord, I'm asking you to deliver me because it's tearing me into pieces. What's going on? I mean, it's weighing down my soul. It's tearing up my heart. Lord, I just can't take the pain anymore. I feel like a lion who's tearing apart a piece of meat. That's how I feel internally. That's what he's saying. I need you. But David says, man, if I, but if I'm in guilty and I've done what they're saying I've done, then that's fine. Turn me over to the lions. Let it happen. Say la. Meditate on that. And then he says in verse six, arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift up yourself against the rage of my adversaries and arouse yourself for me. You have appointed judgment. Let the assembly of the people encompass you and over them return on high. Lord, it's in your hands, he's saying, but I'm asking you to do something about it. He says, arise and please step in here with your justice. Verse eight, the Lord, the Lord judges the peoples. Vindicate me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and my integrity that is within me. Lord, you vindicate the righteous. You know these accusations. You know that they're not true. You know that these are false words. You know how deep the knives go in my back. David, again, David's not claiming to be sinless here when he says, according to my righteousness. No, no, no. But what he's saying here, Lord, if I'm innocent of the accusations, I am innocent. So judge based on that. Judge based on the truth. Verse nine, oh, oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. Let me read that again. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. And we say amen to that, right? But establish the righteous. 
For the righteous, God tries the heart and minds. My shield, David says, my defense, if you will, my protection, in verse 10, is with God who saves the upright. God is a righteous judge. That is, he's just. He's going to judge rightly. And a God who has indignation every day. Verse 12, if a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. Now, for you and I tonight, we know God's heart. We read scriptures. We know the entirety of scripture. The Bible tells us that the Lord wishes that none should perish, right? That all should come to repentance. That's why he says, the Bible says over and over again, today, if you hear my voice, don't harden your heart, right? Return to me, repent and come back to me. There's no sin so great that you could commit that the Lord cannot forgive. So don't let, whether maybe you're watching tonight online or or you're here in this room, don't let anyone ever tell you that you are too far gone for God. You're too far out of his reach. It's a lie from the pit. Listen to this. His arms are open for you, ready to receive anyone who would turn to him, turn away from sin and turn to him. We, again, we saw that beautifully on Sunday with the story of the prodigal. The father is waiting. He's waiting to, he's waiting expectantly for you to return so he can embrace you in his arms. But he says, if they don't repent though, then God will sharpen his sword. That's not good, by the way. He's getting it ready. Verse 13, he's also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. David's simply saying that God is ready to judge. God is righteous. God is holy. He's ready to deal with sin. Sin has to be dealt with. Thank you, Jesus, for coming, right? Verse 14, behold, he travails with wickedness and he conceives mischief and brings forth falsehood. He he says, he's using this word conceive like a woman giving birth. He says, the wicked is conceiving mischief, falsehood, lies. He's not just wicked in his heart, but it's coming out. It's, It's birthing into a public forum here in a public way. And he says, he has dug a pit and hollowed it out and he's followed into the hole which he made. His mischief will return upon his own head and his violence will descend upon his own pate. The the destruction of the wicked will really be their own doing. They have created, they've had this master plan, if you will, destroy others, right? That same plan is gonna end up destroying themselves. That's what he's saying here. Then he says, finally, in verse 17, I will give thanks to the Lord according to his righteousness and will sing praise to the name of the Lord most high. David ends this gloomy, gloomy psalm on a high note of praise. And I love this. David was able to be honest and transparent before the Lord, but then to walk away with a thankful heart, singing praises to the Lord. Why? Because he didn't allow the hurt to turn into bitterness in this point of his life. He didn't allow other people's sins, whatever they were, to become his sins. 
And he praises the Lord because he takes the pain. He takes the accusation and he, he brings it. David brings it before the Lord. And in faith, he leaves it there. He says, God, here it is. Here's the pain. God, it's all yours now. I'm trusting you with it. And that's a good reminder for us, man. This is how we deal with the pain. We approach the Lord in humility. And here's what I want to do. As we close tonight, Josh, you can come out. He's going to lead us in a few minutes of worship. Many of us have had or are currently experiencing some pain like this in our lives, right? We've been hurt. Maybe you've been stabbed in the back. You've been lied about. You've been falsely accused. You've been feeling betrayed by someone in your life, maybe someone very close to you. And you just feel like this lion inwardly is tearing you apart. Your heart is breaking. But listen, as we worship tonight, I want us to take those hurts. You guys know them. I don't know what they are. You know what they are. You before the Lord, take those hurts, take that pain, take the burden that's on your heart and first go to the Lord with that. Psalm 139, it. that's one of my favorite Psalms. Lord, search me know me, try me, see if there's any wicked way in me, right? Allow the Lord to examine your heart, examine what's going on. And maybe the Lord will reveal something to you. Maybe he's like, yeah, maybe, maybe that, that's, that knife is, is not completely, you know, unjust or, you know, like, I don't know what he's going to reveal to you. Maybe you do need to repent of something. Or maybe, just maybe, you'll come to the same conclusion like David, where you're just like, I'm innocent. I can stand before the Lord as innocent in this. And if that's the case tonight, tell him about the pain. Be honest about the pain. Ask him to move in your situation. And then this is what I want us to do. Leave it there. Leave it there and then worship. Trusting that God is going to act, that God is going to move that God is going to heal, God is going to restore. We talked a lot last night just um, in, our, in our group, small group, about reconciliation. Obviously talking about the prodigal and that story. But that's God's heart. And so maybe it could be a word for you that God wants to do some reconciliation in your heart tonight and in your life, maybe with someone. Be praying about that. Be praying for that. That's his heart for us. That's how the gospel shines brightly in our lives is when, man, two people are at odds. They're estranged and they come together under the mercy and forgiveness and grace of Jesus. And maybe that's what he wants to do in your heart tonight or in the future. But let's just open our, our hearts up to the Lord tonight. Father, tonight, I just pray right now as we just take a few minutes, God, before you, as we, before we even sing, Lord, would you just open us up? Would you examine our hearts? Would you search us, as David said? Would you search us that the darkest places of our heart where we don't let anyone else see, God, would you search there? We give you permission to search in those areas that are uncomfortable, that are painful. And Lord, if there is things in us that we need to repent of tonight, there's some wickedness in there. God, I pray that we would be able to confess that to you, knowing that you're a merciful father. And Lord, I just pray for anyone in this room tonight. I pray for my own life as well. If there's hurt, if there's pain, if there's been betrayal. 
pray, Father, that you would bring healing, that you would bring reconciliation, that families would be reconciled, that marriages would be restored, that mom and daughter or dad and son relationships would move on in a fruitful, God-honoring way. God, we just, we need you to work. We need you, Lord, to do what only you can do. We can't make this happen. So what we're doing, God, tonight is we're just laying our burdens before you, opening ourselves up to you, and help us to leave it there and to trust you.